So the text of this afternoon is verses 3 through 8 in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll read the, uh, the greeting at the beginning as well, some from verse 1 to 8. Philippians 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as I both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ." Thus far, God's word. After the sermon, we'll sing together from hymn 49, senses 1 through 4. Beloved saints in Christ Jesus, as we come across Paul this afternoon, he's bent over his scroll, or maybe he's dictating to a scribe. He's penning a letter to the Philippians, And as he thinks about the Philippians, they're filling his thoughts. He's sort of taking a trip down memory lane, you could say. He's given to praise and thanksgiving as he begins this letter, as he so often does when he writes a letter to a congregation. He's filled with thanksgiving. And when you consider just how the gospel came to Philippi, it's really no surprise that Paul is so thankful as he thinks about the Philippians. We read it together in Acts chapter 16, and it's one of the most remarkable stories of the way the gospel came to a specific city. We come across Paul, who's traveling throughout Asia Minor, going from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, he has all these grand plans, and his itinerary is probably laid out, and suddenly he stops short. The Holy Spirit stops him from preaching the gospel. We don't know what that means or what that looked like, or how exactly the Holy Spirit made it clear that he could no longer preach the gospel in Asia Minor, but it's clear in any case that Paul knows it's time to move on. And so he plans to go north. He says, I'm going to go north to Bithynia then and see if I can try it over there. But when they try to go north to Bithynia, we're told that the spirit of Jesus stops Paul in his tracks. He's not supposed to go to Bithynia either. More mystery, you could say. We don't know how Jesus appeared to Paul, but there's this moment where Paul says, okay, Bithynia, it can't be either. And so he goes to the coastal city of Troas on the Aegean Sea, finds a bed there in in a local hotel or something like that, lays down to rest for the night, and he receives a vision. A man from Macedonia, which lay across the Aegean Sea, comes and appears before Paul in this vision. He says, Paul, we need your help over in Macedon. The gospel hadn't been preached there yet. And this man of Macedon appeals to Paul in this dream. He's got to come over and preach the gospel in Macedonia. 
The plan is clear. And so Paul, in obedience, as soon as he wakes up that next morning, books a berth on the next ship, sails across the Aegean, spreads the good news in Macedon, in particular the city of Philippi. It's a tremendous series of events if you consider just how strongly God had led him to go to Philippi to preach the gospel there. And you'd expect, given such a dramatic calling too, that God would have great plans for the spread of the gospel in Philippi as well, and we're not disappointed, are we? First, there's Lydia, this seller of purple clothing. But especially maybe Paul's thinking here of this slave girl who had been following them around, this demon-possessed woman who was bothering them in their ministry until finally Paul cast out the demon. Maybe he's thinking of the jailer and his family who came to faith in this remarkable series of events, including an earthquake shaking the very prison in which Paul and Silas were sitting in. In any case, the way the gospel spread in Philippi is a remarkable story. And so it's no wonder that Paul, as he thinks about the Philippians, as he's writing this letter, is filled with thanksgiving and joy for this special congregation. So these are some of the thoughts that are shaping his prayers as he turns to the Philippians. And so we'll consider this afternoon Paul's persistent prayers of thanksgiving for the saints in Philippi. We'll see how these prayers are characterized by being filled with joy, brimming with confidence, and overflowing with affection. So these persistent prayers of thanksgiving are, first of all, filled with joy. There's obviously something very special between Paul and the Philippians. We read in that opening verse, or verse 3, I thank my God, every remembrance of you, always in every prayer, making requests for you all with joy. Paul's just heaping up prayers for the Philippians as he's going down memory lane. And every time he remembers them, he's filled with this thanksgiving. But more than thanksgiving, the most remarkable characteristic of this prayer is not even so much that he was doing it all the time, constantly praying for them, but praying with joy. His prayers are always characterized with joy. And why is that so striking? Well, Paul's circumstances, you'd think, hardly called for joy. You see, Paul is only too reminded of his time in Philippi because as he was in prison there, he's now sitting in prison again. As he writes this letter from, Philippi, from, from the city of Rome to the Philippians, he's back in prison, he's on house arrest, he's chained to a guard 24-7. This is his situation, and yet he's filled with joy. The prospects are grim as well. He's waiting for an appearance before the emperor. And the emperor is none other than Nero. You may have heard of the emperor Nero, right? Well known for his persecution of the Christians. That lay in the future yet, when there was the great fire in Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. He used them as torches to light his banquets. This was the emperor Paul had to face the prospect of facing in a matter of weeks or months or even years. Capital punishment is a strong possibility in his future. And what's more, as he languishes here in prison, his opponents are using the opportunity to undermine his authority, to say, what kind of a, go- what kind of a gospel could this be that it lands him in prison? What kind of an apostle could this be that he's there in chains in the city of Rome? Hardly cause for joy. And yet, that's what he says, making requests for you all, with joy. In fact, this entire epistle, the epistles of Philippians, is often called the epistle of joy. 
You may be familiar with that verse 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. This is an epistle of joy. Here as Paul sits in prison, he's writing the joyful epistle. How can this chained apostle on death row write with joy and pray with joy? We begin to understand if we look a little further on in the letter. Shortly after our text this this afternoon, we read in verse 21 a remarkable and well-known verse. For For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we can't spend much time on that here. That's more than enough for at least one sermon. But we can see in this verse and we can see throughout the epistle and in Paul's life that his life is wrapped up and dedicated to Christ. Christ is everything for the Apostle Paul. And so circumstances mean very little. In fact, later on he even says that suffering for Christ is a privilege. He wants to know Christ. That involves participating in his suffering. Participating with him even in his death. This is the joy that fills the Apostle Paul. It's a joy in Jesus Christ. It's not a joy that's tied to particular circumstances. It's not a joy that comes and goes like emotions like happiness or sadness. This joy is the deep abiding characteristic of the Christian. It's an attitude. It's an orientation towards life. That's the fruit of a close and personal relationship with God. Did you notice what Paul called God in those, that opening verse as well? I thank my God. My God. Paul has an intimate, close relationship with God in heaven. It's not just the creator. It's, it's his God. It's a personal God. And he can pray with joy because he has a living, intimate relationship with God. And for Paul, this relationship with God, this relationship through Jesus Christ, makes immediate circumstances almost irrelevant. Christ is everything. We can see that also in the special reason he gives here in this text. He says he prays for joy in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. See, he's above all thankful because these Philippians have been joined with Paul in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ. They embrace their role as partners in the gospel of Christ from the very beginning, he says. Just think of the passage we read in Acts 16. Lydia hears the gospel. Her heart is opened and immediately she opens her home too to the missionaries. Her house becomes the center of a new house congregation. Immediate change. Or the jailer, as soon as he professes his faith in Christ, he brings the apostles into his home, he bathes them tenderly, he looks after their wounds, he feeds them, he cares for them. As soon as their hearts are opened by Jesus Christ, their hands are directed to the service of God. That's the tie there is between the good news of salvation and going to work in fellowship with the gospel. And since then, since that beginning, the Philippians have been only too busy sharing in Paul's gospel work, financially and otherwise. As Paul goes out around on his missionary journeys, they're supplying him with all that he has need of. They're sending him money. They're sending him gifts. 
They're praying for him. They're supporting him in every way you can imagine. Even though, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, they themselves were a poor congregation. He says they gave even though it hurt. Even though they themselves didn't have adequate means, adequate resources, they gave themselves to the ministry of the gospel. They gave themselves to support Paul as the apostle of the good news of salvation. Recently, they've sent Epaphroditus to Rome with gifts for Paul to ease his imprisonment. The whole congregation is singled out as those who are supportive of the gospel ministry. Their desire, first and foremost, is to see the gospel preached for Christ's kingdom to be advanced. For Paul, for the Philippians, Christ is everything. And so their joy is rooted in Christ too. If Christ's glory is being advanced, if Christ's gospel is being preached, if Christ's people are being built up and strengthened, then there's cause for great joy and thanksgiving, regardless of the circumstances. And so Paul, as he sits here in chains in Rome, is filled with joy. But it's not just Paul. It's not just an experience that an apostle of Jesus Christ can have. This joy is available to each and every one of us. When we are rooted and grounded in Christ, this joy becomes ours as well. A joy that doesn't set aside sorrow, that doesn't set aside unhappiness, that doesn't dismiss or ignore the difficulties in this life, but that transcends it because it's anchored in Christ and in the work that he has done for us. Is this the kind of joy you experience? Or do you desire this kind of joy? It is possible to find this long-lasting and deep-seated joy. But only in Jesus Christ. Only in your Savior. When you make him the object of your faith, then you also receive this solid, long-lasting, unshakable joy. Make Christ everything in your life. Pray to him in joy because he can only, he's the only one who can fill you with this joy. He's the only one who can fill us with this peace as well that comes when we face a broken world, when we face the brokenness in our own hearts. And then share that joy too. The Philippians, as soon as they received that joy through Jesus Christ, they went to work sharing the gospel message. Through their prayers and through their support, the Apostle Paul was able to continue his work. The Philippians were demonstrating that they were devoted to Christ, that he had taken hold of their lives. And when Christ takes hold of your life, then everything changes. We have the privilege of sharing the same good news. And not always directly. The Philippians, too, were supporting from a distance. But it's no small thing for you to be involved financially and prayerfully in the spread of the gospel. Never underestimate the power and the significance of your prayers and your financial support of missionaries, ministers, and evangelists. Never underestimate the value of your prayers and your financial support either. Witness the way Paul is so thankful for what the Philippians are doing in supporting his ministry. It's no small thing when people work for the cause of Christ, when their lives are transformed to share that gospel joy. Because it's the only thing that can bring this true joy 
You remember the song of the shepherds or the song of the angels to the shepherds around the fields of Bethlehem. This is the joy that is announced, a joy that can only come when there's peace between God and man, when there is shalom between God and his people. That's the joy that fills Paul as he prays for the Philippians. But it's not the only characteristic of his prayers. There's also confidence. Paul's prayers are brimming with confidence. We see that in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident. And in some ways, this is unexpected too. Just like his joy was unexpected because of the circumstances he was in, so this confidence too is somewhat unexpected. We saw how quickly Paul had to leave Philippi. He had just started his work there in Philippi. It wasn't a strong congregation. It didn't have years and years of experience or of wisdom such as are among you here this afternoon. It was a fledgling congregation. And they were in the middle of a pagan Roman imperial city. It was so much to distract them from the gospel message, so much that was attacking the roots of the gospel as well. And yet, Paul prays with confidence. Humanly speaking, the chances of the congregation in Philippi surviving were very slim, but Paul prays with confidence. But Paul, as we've seen, has his eyes firmly fixed on Christ. And we can see also in his confidence that it's because of his relationship with Christ that he can pray in this way. Because it wasn't his persuasive words that won the Philippians over to Jesus Christ. We read in Acts together, When it came to Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You see, the work that we do, it's not our own. The work that the minister does in proclaiming the word, the work that the missionaries do in proclaiming the word, the work that we do in sharing the message of salvation, it's not our own work. Christ works in us and through us. It's only when he blesses it with his Holy Spirit that it has the effect that it can have. And so Paul, too, leaves Philippi in faith. He leaves the church there in faith, knowing that Christ does the church-gathering work, that where Christ begins something, he also carries it out to completion. And so Paul's confidence in the Philippians really has nothing to do with the Philippians' character in and of themselves. It's not as though he's thinking of that Lydia. I mean, what a strong character. Uh, Surely a faith like that will last through any kind of storm. He's not thinking of the jailer, that somehow the jailer was going to keep this congregation together, that some of the jailer was going to be the, the, the nucleus around which this congregation would focus. His confidence is rooted in the character of God himself, who always accomplishes what he sets out to do. That's where his confidence comes from. And he's proven right, isn't he? Because the Philippians' willingness to share in the gospel, their partaking in the gospel, it's only possible because of the work of God in their lives. God began his work in their lives, and so of course he's going to carry it out to completion. Their salvation is going to be made perfect in Jesus Christ because God is working in their hearts. And he's not going to stop his work in his children until he reveals in them the image of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul also prays with thanksgiving for the Philippians' support in the gospel with confidence because he trusts that where God begins, 
Where God does work in Jesus Christ, he also carries it to completion. And this is our confidence too. We share in this confidence of the Apostle Paul when we are rooted and grounded in Christ. We may despair at times of the future of the church. Perhaps we despair at times of the future of our federation. Perhaps we despair of the future of our our mission work in Quebec. The world makes so many inroads into the church. There's so much attacking us from outside and the devil prowls around like a roaring lion and he attacks those who are strongest in the faith. He would see nothing better than to see churches fall. He wants to break the church of Christ. But we must remember that it is Christ's church. It's not our church. It's not the church of the elders or the deacons. It's Christ's church And so we have confidence in the power of Christ to preserve his church. That where he has his people, he will also protect them. That where he has his bride, he's also at work beautifying her and purifying her. That frees us, doesn't it? To look at the future with anticipation. It frees us for joy in Jesus Christ. But the same goes for us individually. It's not just the church that is Christ, but the individual believers too. You and I belong to Christ just as much as his church belongs to Christ. We don't make any presumptions regarding the strength of our own faith either. We don't look at ourselves and say, well, surely I will make it to the end because I have such a strong faith. But we fix our eyes on Christ because Christ is strong enough We rest in the unshakable promises of a God who does what he sets out to do. You've been baptized. You've received the promises of God. Those promises are real and they're powerful and they're effective when we fix our eyes on Christ. They come from a God who is able to do so much more than we can ask and imagine. And so as we find ourselves in periods of weakness, periods where our faith is not as strong as we would like it to be, well, then we don't dig deeply into ourselves. Again, we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, as we saw again this morning. We can pray to Christ with confidence, knowing that when he begins his work in us, he will also carry it to completion. Because the truth is that the God who calls is also the God who justifies. And the God who justifies is the God who sanctifies. And the God who sanctifies is the God who glorifies. It's one God, and it's his one work of salvation. And so it frees us. We pass through difficult circumstances. We face difficult struggles and trials of many kinds. We may struggle in weakness against indwelling sin, but we may be confident that Christ's work in us will be completed because Christ has begun it. Many of us take up projects with enthusiasm and joy only to let it fall aside quickly when we get bored with it. Just think of the unfinished tasks that perhaps surround us in our homes. God isn't like that. God isn't at all like that. The God who begins is the God who completes. The God who promises is the God who fulfills. There was no possibility of failure or partial completion on the part of the Philippians because Christ had begun his work in those people and Christ would carry it out to completion. When we are in Christ, there is only cause for confidence and joy at the prospect of God's completed work in our lives. That's the prayer 
that Paul can pray. A prayer rooted in Christ. Confident and joyful. But there's a final characteristic to his prayer too, and that's affection. It's overflowing with affection. And maybe that's the least surprising of the characteristics of his prayer. You can see this would have a natural relationship. You can think for yourself of the pastors you've had in the past. There's a deep relationship between a pastor and his congregation. And Paul's there preaching the gospel to them. Of course, he has deep affection for these people. He shared the gospel with them. How could he not have deep affection for them? They welcomed him into their homes. He saw the evidence of God's grace in their lives. But there's more of it than that too. They had partnered with him in the gospel. They had supported him prayerfully as we've seen financially. That too would have been a cause for affection between them. Even now as he sits there in chains, you would think the prospects of him succeeding as a a gospel preacher were pretty slim. They don't stop supporting him. Their fellowship with him, their communion with him, they express in tangible ways by sending Epaphrodite, sending these gifts. Again, good cause for deep affection. But it's much more than that as well. The key is in the end of verse 7. You are all partakers with me in God's grace. He says, it's right for me. That is, it's fitting for me, it's appropriate for me to have deep love for you because we share in God's grace. They share in a common status as those who are recipients of God's grace and that, more than anything, is a foundation for deep love and affection. That's a foundation for overflowing affection. And this affection is a constant link. Whether Paul's in chains or whether he's free preaching the gospel, they share in God's grace together. This love is a love that fills the body. He says there in verse 7, it's right for me to think of you, and he has them in their heart. That is, it's a, it's a love that's in the mind, and it's a love that's in the heart. Paul's whole being is overflowing with love for the Philippian congregation. In fact, he wants them to appreciate this so much that he calls God as his witness. He says in verse 8, For God is my witness. He swears an oath. He says, Philippians, I love you, and God is my witness that I do so. It's a love that's only possible because God had shared his grace with the Apostle Paul. That kind of affection is only possible when you're in Christ. It's the fruit of a relationship with God. It's the fruit of being a recipient of God's grace. Because when God's love overflows into our lives, it causes our own hearts to overflow with love as well. Because Christ loves us, we can and we ought to love one another. And then we love, as he writes in the last last words there, we love with the affection of Jesus Christ. We love with the affection of Jesus Christ. That verse, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, from the letter to the Galatians. Christ lives in us. Well, the fact is, it's no longer we who love, but Christ loves through us. It's no longer the love of the world. It's no longer the love that we see in the world around us, the love that we see in Hollywood, the love that we see in books and movies The love that flows from our hearts is the love of Jesus Christ himself because Christ takes up residence in our hearts. That's the love that comes 
from a Christian. That's the love that comes from those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how radically people become transformed when Christ comes to live in their hearts. That love has a certain character too. It's self-sacrificial. It's humble. It's a self-emptying kind of love. The kind of love that Paul describes in chapter 2 that Christ showed in forsaking his place of glory at God's right hand, becoming a man like one of us. This is the kind of love that Paul encourages us to have too. In the following chapter, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having this same kind of love. This love that Christ displayed on the cross in scorning its shame and humiliating himself to the cross because he loved the ones he came to save. This is the kind of love that flows out of our hearts when we're in Christ. So when we're rooted in Christ, we ought to see this kind of affection. We will see this kind of affection for each other. And then we'll see ourselves as we truly are, not as a social club, not as a community of people with like minds or similar interests, but as a family of those who share equally in God's grace and a family of those who equally need God's grace. All of us just as indebted to God as the next, just as privileged to be recipients of his grace as the next. That's the foundation of godly love and affection in the communion of saints. Apart from that foundation, that Christ foundation, it's impossible for that kind of love to exist. Apart from that foundation and the spirit working in our hearts, it's impossible for us to have the affection of Jesus Christ. But now, when we are in Christ, this affection motivates us, as it did Paul, to thanksgiving, to joyful prayer for each other. What a wonderful picture of the power of the gospel it is when we see a community, a communion of saints that loves each other, that loves each other with the love of Christ, with the self-emptying, humble love of Jesus Christ. Do you long for each other with the affection of Jesus Christ? How deep is your love for those who are partakers in God's grace with you? Let's be motivated to love each other, to pray for each other with affection, with joy, and with confidence too. Confidence that where God begins work, even if it's just the beginning he will carry it to completion. And above all, let's give thanks continually. We have so much reason in Jesus Christ for thanksgiving and joy and confidence. Amen.